Hello ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg show this show is for people who want to live a fulfilled life through mindfulness practices psychology and personal transformation my job on this show is to invite world class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life this episode guest is Megan Magdana Megan is an award winning author of four books on mindfulness and the CEO of Whole Being Institute, an educational organization teaching the science of human flourishing, with a degree in nuclear medicine, decades of leadership experience, 25 years of teaching and practicing yoga, and a leader in the field of positive psychology, Megan combines intellectual understanding with an embodied approach to teaching, learning, leading, and living. And now let the episode begin. The American poet and philosopher Henry David Thoreau went to the woods to live deliberately. While creating a deliberate life takes effort, energy and action, the woods are optional. You can live deliberate life here and now, shaping your life through deeply held values and your attention. Megan, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Nishant. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Okay, I would like to start off with my favorite and very funny question with you how would your family describe what do you do for a living <laughs> that is indeed a very funny question because a lot of times i get from my uh, two grown children who are 21 and 25 or my husband we don't really know what the heck mom does but she seems <laughs> off busy doing it <laughs> uh, so um Yeah, they they do have a tough time describing what I do and even I have a tough time describing what I do, but if I were to put it in a nutshell, it would be teaching what it means to be fully alive and living into that as best as I can myself. And I asked this question to many of my guests who are into this mindfulness and psychology space and they have the same answer most of the time that their family have a hard time to explain what they do for a living. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's I I do think that's because it's a dharma, it's a calling uh that is meant to be answered and it doesn't fit very neatly into what uh what we would typically describe as a job description or as a a title or a role. Instead, it's something for myself anyways that what I want my life to stand for and in living into that comes out of it things like building organizations running organizations leading teams of people building educational programs but behind all that is really the intention and the energy of i think it's just doing my job doing my work in the world my dharma if you will so speaking of dharma and what what is your dharma now and i i want to understand this we use dharma calling purpose interchangeably are the same words or they have some interconnectedness hmm. so i use that i use that word and i guess i can go back to like 20 years ago when i worked in the corporate world and i worked with a great company doing really good work and i loved the people i worked with but i had this sense in myself that there was something more that in fact there was something within me that wanted to be expressed that needed a canvas to which to draw upon this thing this unknown thing in myself that wanted to be expressed you know at the time when i was thinking about this it was when i um 
was, again, working a corporate job, but I also started doing yoga a quarter of a century ago. And I started noticing that the attention that I brought to my yoga mat really helped hone in on these sensations of lack in my corporate job. Like, what was that lack? What was that sense of feeling like there was more to be had in uh, my life than what I was uh, experiencing in my corporate work? So for me, when I think of dharma and purpose, it has a specific felt sense or quality within you that when you're doing it, it's not that it's easy or perhaps um, not that it's always fun, but it feels like you're doing your work in the world. It feels like putting on clothing that fits really well or an inner, yeah, this is, this is my work, however difficult it is, however challenging it might be, that I know I'm doing my work in the world. And I think a lot of us struggle with how to answer that question. What do I want to do in life? <laughs> Can we try? It is and... tough. What's that? It is tough. It's yeah. I mean, that question, "What do I want to do?" puts a lot of angst on the answer of thinking that if I had the perfect job, if I did the right profession, then I would be happy. And I think the Dharma or our purpose is less about a perfect job and a title than it is how we live into the day moment by moment and 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 i think of if i were to spell out two things it's one there's a bigger purpose to my 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 life but also very tangibly that there are values that i live into every day and those values help guide how we shape our work in the world so those two things for me are interrelated purpose and values mm. And coming back to purpose again, this purpose term can be very daunting to a lot of people. And people say that we don't know what is our purpose. And when you work with people in your organization, how do you help people find their purpose and maintaining and, and shaping their values? Mm. So those are two different questions, purpose and values. I'll answer them both um, separately. I, I, when I think of purpose, it, it's about meaning in our life. And the research that has, has been coming out on meaning in life shows us that our lives are inherently meaningful, yet we don't always see it. So it's not about finding, it's about seeing what's right in front of you. Like in other words, Meaning is ubiquitous. It's everywhere because our brain works by creating narratives. So seeing the meaning in our everyday life is about building an attention to what's happening. And then we build coherence such that we can begin to see the significance in our own lives. And that's really when I, when I was thinking about, you know, 20 years ago when I started this sort of journey of my own, I use a four-step process to be able to actually say, how am I living deliberately um, on purpose? And the American philosopher and poet, Henry David Thoreau, went to Walden Pond to live deliberately. And he, and he wrote in uh, his writing about that experience that, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and not when I come to die, discover I had not lived. 
this is what we all yearn for, right? That we don't, we want to make sure that this life we're leading means something to ourselves, right? Who wants to go to the grave feeling like, oh my goodness, I just wasted my life. So I'm interested in, unlike Thoreau, retreating to the woods to live deliberately, is can I live deliberately right here with you in this moment, Nishanta, as we're having this conversation? What does deliberate living look like on purpose here in this moment? So that work of living deliberately and, and, and being able to see the purpose for me boils down to four steps uh, or four things. And they're not linear steps, they're just ways of walking. And into. when did you uh, design these four steps? So this was sort of the integration between my corporate role that was somehow lacking uh, some sense of my full self, embodied self being involved into it, like there was something missing for me, and my yoga practice. When I began to bring my yoga practice into how I was living in the corporate world day to day, I came up with this four-step process. So this was 20 years ago, 2000, I wrote the book, Infinity in the Box, using yoga to live with ease. And the very nature of it is to say the attention that we bring to our everyday life can be as profound as when we're on a yoga mat and we're doing the triangle pose or downward dog or deep breathing that those skills are not limited to just when we're practicing yoga we could actually have life itself be a practice of mindfulness What are those four steps? If you can please explain those. Yeah, so living with ease, ease is an acronym for the four steps. The first step is E for experience, meaning really just pay attention to what's happening now. What's happening now? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? How am I acting? Um, what's my energy level? How's my breathing? And noticing our surroundings, how you do. So it's, it's the first step E is the quintessential mindfulness practice of using your concentrated awareness of directing your attention, that which is true in your experience in this moment. And so if we were to define mindfulness, I really my favorite definition of mindfulness is Bishop's definition. There was a group of people that came together to look at the different ways of looking at mindfulness. And this definition said a self-regulation of attention with an attitude of curiosity, openness, and acceptance. So that first step in the ease process is about directing your attention with an attitude of curiosity, openness, and attention to what's acceptance to what's happening now. The second step uh, of the process is A for awareness. So if the first step is experience, the second step is asking what else is there? Because our brains are very, they're predicting machines is what they are. They think about, they take the data of what's coming in now, they build assumptions about what this means, and then they predict what's gonna come next. 
part of mindfulness, especially creative mindfulness described by Ellen Langer in Harvard, is noticing what's new instead of falling into habitual patterns of behavior. So this second step of being aware and asking yourself the question, what else is there, is that you begin to go outside of your singular experience. Oh, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm my back hurts or my breathing is and instead expanding it out to say, oh, I wonder what Nishant's experience of me is, or I wonder what Nishant is experiencing or his listeners, or, oh, I just noticed the sun playing off the screen. You begin to practice more of an open focus to your meditation versus a concentrated focus of your mindfulness. So the first step is noticing, the second step is expanding your awareness and taking in more data than just your habitual thinking might bring. And running running away from automatic pilot habits. Yeah, those will happen. That's, I mean, after a lifetime of building neural connections, that's what the brain does best. It predicts and it creates shortcuts. Because if we didn't have these shortcuts, it'd be awfully difficult to live our life because it... If we had to think about how to drive a car every time we got in the car, it would be very, <laughs> be very difficult. But those shortcuts help us. But we also could, because the brain has a natural negativity bias, because the brain tends to look more closely with what's wrong, what's broken, what needs to be fixed, than what's right and what's rock working and what's strong. This second step of being more aware allows us to shift our attention into other areas that we may have missed, the, the things that are going well in our lives, the, the other things that are outside of our habitual thinking or our negativity bias. So yes, you are correct. It's, it's like a lens, taking a lens onto our life because in that automatic habit zone, we get stuck into what we are seeing and that could be negative bias and that could be some negative meaning in our life. And that allows us to see the positive side if we choose to see the positive angle in our lives. Yeah, I, I so agree with that, Nishant. And, and, and it's not that our habitual thinking is wrong or that the negative thoughts should be pushed aside or negated. It's more of an encompassing of the whole that, yes, I might be having these negative thoughts and the sun is shining and it's a beautiful day out. So it's it, what we call in the whole being institute being aware of the whole being <laughs> the whole yeah. person well-being like it's we, we don't have to separate into good and bad but there is an inherent wholeness that we can hold versus negating one at the cost of another so first step is experiencing slash noticing second step is awareness mm. third is as what what does s stand for mm. so s stands for self-reflection which basically came out of a conversation I had with the president of DuPont. I was down at a meeting in Philadelphia, and it was a small group meeting. And the president of DuPont asked me at that meeting what I wanted to do in that company. Now, that's a great question to be asked. But the, the, the problem was I didn't have an answer. I mean, I didn't really know what to say because I knew I wasn't particularly happy in my role, and I really didn't know what the next step was. And so I said to him, Nick, did you always know you wanted to be president of DuPont? 
And his answer really set me on a trajectory that has lasted this last 20 years. And I suspect I'll be living into this till the end of my life. He said, Megan, it's not what you want to do. That's the right question to ask. It's how do you want to be? This is, this is my, this was mind blowing to me. As it a, is. Yeah. It, that I tend to be an action oriented person who says, let's get this done. Let's do that. And what Nick was telling me is that you need, you need to actually spend time answering that very first question. How do you want to be? And it is that value based beingness that we can land in and relax into when everything else is going crazy and, you know, we're worried about COVID-19 or things aren't going well at work or family life is in turmoil. We can use our values as a way of resting into the core of who we are. And so self-reflection, this third step, answers the question, how do I want to be? And it's a value-based proposition. And did you ask Nick, who is the president of, or who was the president of DuPont, who, who is he or who he wants to be? You know, I, I would have loved to have had enough state of mind to ask him, tell me, Nick, how do you answer that question for yourself? I did not because his question just sort of, it just brought about this big aha in myself. And I was just reverberating with the wisdom of those words and what it meant. How would I live into that? So I, I'm, I'm regret to say, I regret to say I didn't ask him that question, but he did tell me that he heard of that question from his predecessor, the past president of DuPont, when he became the president of DuPont. So there was for him sort of this passing along of the torch of how important this question is. And so the the plane ride home, I came up for myself, what I think about as my organizing principle for my life. And it does, it does dovetail into your earlier question about purpose and meaning. It's the coherence that structures my life. And my uh, values for myself are to live, to love, and to learn. And for me, that means living means really going all in on this thing of life, no matter how crazy it is, no matter how happy or joyous or sad and grievous I am, is can I fully experience this gift of being alive? Uh, and what does that look like going all into this life and saying, yes, yes, here I am. Yes, here I am again to what's happening now. The second thing is to, for me, my value of, of love. I really consciously cultivate a sense of loving kindness to myself and to others to the best of my ability in any given moment to say, what would love look like here? What would love look like here? How, do, how would love feel in myself at this point? So to live, to love, and to learn, and I think learning for me is really important because I knew I would do the first two very imperfectly, that I would fall down only a gazillion times. And if I didn't embrace the permission to learn, the permission to make mistakes, the permission to be human, do things correctly, that I didn't want to use these values as a self-flagellation tool for myself. So the question I would ask your viewers as you think about paying attention to your own life and expanding your awareness is what values are so essential and core to who you are that can help guide into how you want to live. And every spiritual tradition everywhere talks about 
moral grounding and making good choices about the, the values that you live into. So I think we're on solid footing when we say an important question to answer in our life is not just what we want to do, but how we want to be. This is a very powerful thing you have talked about. Because doing keeps changing as we evolve in life. What we are doing now, we may not be doing after five years or ten years down the line. And if we create a life which is based on values, because values, do, let me ask you in a different way. Do you think our values evolve with time? Mm-hmm. Or they, uh, if, some, if our listeners think they don't have any value right now, I mean to say the, uh, values in their life. If mm-hmm. we create some values at this point, are they going to be the same or do they evolve or change? Mm, I think that's a great question. So uh, I, I'll give you my personal experience Please. and a little bit about what the, what the science says about this. My personal experience is, is that we can have a con- I can have a concept in my head about what love is. But love as a concept doesn't necessarily mean I know the felt sense of love in different circumstances in this moment. So what does love look like when your child comes home drunk or an employee that you work with is stealing or so we might hold a concept or an ideal of love but when we actually live into it we understand the nuances about really what love is for ourselves in a completely embodied way that's very different than a cognitive understanding of the word so i i think when we talk about core values they're always there but the nuanced ability to understand what that means might deepen as we experience it. And what the science says is that we can, what we were gaining when we're using different words to describe our experience is that we begin to develop what's called emotional granularity. Like instead of things being all good or all bad, that we begin to have this really more defined vocabulary that get more and more specific about what this concept means to us individually. It creates a deeper narrative. I'll give you another example. I was working with a a CEO of an organization, and she was going through some tough times. And what she said to me when I asked her the question, how are you being with all this? And she said, I'm practicing patience. And we, I was doing private yoga sessions with her. So, you know, at the time when I was doing this yoga work, this was probably 15 years ago, we would move into positions and we would do yoga practices and breathing practices. And I would ask the question, what's happening now? What's your experience now? And that's when she said to me, oh, practicing patience. And about a half an hour went by and I asked her again. I said, what's happening now? And she said, I just realized something. She said, I realized I thought I was practicing patience by waiting for this difficulty to pass, but I realized that I was being passive. Now for a CEO to practice patience, that's a good, that, that's a helpful quality and a helpful value to live into. If you as a CEO are seeing problems and you're addressing it by being passive, that also has some ramifications. And the ability to understand the difference between patience as a value and passivity as a lived experience 
that type of discernment about those two different ways of being are worlds apart in terms of, of, of not only our own experience, but really what is the impact of that on others. And this is what I mean about self-reflection, lived experiences, diving deeper into the understanding of it so that we have a, a real handle on the vocabulary we're using of our experiences. So patience, practicing patience and being passive. And being passive could mean that we are not taking any action against our circumstances if we have an option or a choice to do something about it. Yeah, and that third step of the ease practice to to really do that self-reflection, you can then ask yourself, how do I want to be in this particular situation at work? What value do I want to hold? Do I want to practice patience or is this passivity serving me? And what she came to at this moment was, no, I don't want to be passive. <laughs> patience is okay, but I don't want to be passive and step away from something that needs my attention. So our values and our understanding about how we want to be, I want to be patient, not passive, helps inform what actions we take, which is the fourth step of the ease process. That fourth step is E for enact. You then have to take into life how how you want to be. You can't live as a concept inside of you. It has to be expressed either in how you interact with others, how you interact with yourself, the behavior that you live into. So for this CEO, you know, she decided to, yes, be patient, but not passive, which meant having some conversations with a few people about the truth as she saw it versus just waiting for it to pass. And living life based on core values can be easy when everything is going great the way we want things to be and the challenge comes when things are not going the way we want mm -hmm. and one of your core values is love to ask you if you have any conflict with any any member from your family or anybody in your life how do you live this core value of love in that conflict hmm. yes yeah, so that is the difference between espoused values and lived values right so i'm not a saint <laughs> although no, we are not yes i am not a saint and i realize many times that Although I hold love as a value, I don't feel loving at that moment, and I maybe I'm not expressing love in that moment. That's when I go back to the first two steps of the living with ease process of noticing, for example, what stories am I telling myself in this experience? How am I behaving? Can I notice something from this person's perspective versus my own perspective? So if I'm not living into something, it just simply is an opportunity, an invitation to go back to the experience again, to go back to the awareness again, and to learn more about this concept of love when it feels difficult. I mean, does love always feel happy and peaceful and dapper? Or does love have some edges to it? And that's not for me to tell you. That's what I'm saying is when you have your values and you live into them, you can see their shapes and contours a little bit better and where we might fall short of our own ideal. And 
in psychology, there's a, there's a, a whole bunch of selves. You know, we have our ought self that tells us how we should be, or we should be a provider for the family or be able to keep a roof over our heads or provide, you know, health insurance. Or we should be a lawyer because our parents told us we should go be a lawyer. That's our ought self. So we have voices in our heads telling us how we ought to be. We have an ideal self of an aspirational view of who we want to become. Like maybe I do want to be more loving tomorrow than I am today. And then that trajectory is an aspirational view. But right now, my authentic self is feeling not so loving. So can we live with the voice of the ought self, the aspiration of the ideal self, and actually live with the authentic self that's showing up as it is now? They're all valid. And there is one more self called false self, and that is from spiritual teachings. And false self is nothing but ego. Yeah, so in the yoga tradition, we talk about that too, the self with the capital S and the self with the small s. And so I'm really fascinated personally about how we even define self. And a lot of the work of living with ease and going through that mindfulness process is really to begin to understand how we construct our sense of self and how we construct our own stories about how life should be and what's right and what's wrong. And this is the work whether you call it ego or self or false self, it's there, right? <laughs> so it's there. We, might as, we might as well come to become friends with it and know it because like wishing it away uh, isn't really working. <laughs> and not, not escaping from all these feelings and emotions. And it takes effort, energy and action, a lot of action, a lot of effort, a lot of energy to live a life of whole person well-being. And that you talk about in your organization called Whole Being Institute. Mm-hmm. You you are a founder and CEO of Whole Being Institute, and you founded this organization in 2013. What was your motivation for founding this institute? Yeah, great question. So for me, I um, actually started this work 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I began doing yoga. And the mindfulness that I learned through yoga impacted my everyday work in the corporate world. And in 2000, I decided to leave my corporate job and start my own company around how to build mindfulness and awareness and use these concepts in the business world. So I was I very much enjoyed talking to business leaders and groups about what does it mean to be mindful at work? So I was teaching this uh, from 2000 on, and in 2013, 2012, uh, 2012, I guess, maybe it was even 2011, I had done some work with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who is one of the leaders in the field of positive psychology. And through working with him, I realized that there was a whole field of science that was doing research on positive emotions human flourishing and thriving that I had been talking about in my yoga practice using yogic terms. But in meeting and working with Tal, I was able to like meld those two worlds, our Western-based science of positive psychology and some of the latest neuroscience about human thriving combined with my yoga practice. And I was very fortunate to work with him, very fortunate. He's one of the best in the, in the, in the field. And he and I actually co-founded Whole Being Institute back in 
2013. We, we have an amazing year, nine month course on the study of positive psychology called the Certificate in Whole Being Positive Psychology. And when we first ran that course together, we actually didn't have the Whole Being Institute open at that point. It was just, we were running the course together. He built the content, I built the experience in the small groups. And after that first cohort was done, it was apparent to me that this was life-changing, that once people understood a lived experience of the interventions that worked, like mindfulness, like living with ease, like gratitude, like happiness, all of these, all of these positive emotions had a way of uplifting the human experience. And it was the starting of Whole Being Institute came out of that first experience and was part of the, the trajectory of my work in the world to really help live into our highest and best for the greatest good, if I would end define my dharma in a mission statement, it would be that. Helping people live their highest and best for the greatest good. And then I would use my values of live, love, and learn to that work. And that's how it unfolded for me and what I'm very fortunate every day to work on, even though my family doesn't know how to answer the question. (laughs) I'm pretty clear on what I'm doing. (laughs) And what, what do you teach? I mean... You are your team members. What is this institute mm. teaching and who is this for? So Whole Being Institute is an educational organization that focuses on courses for human flourishing. So our our foundational course is the nine-month certificate in positive psychology. And that, you know, from therapists to healthcare workers to coaches to business leaders, people who may be having a transition, their kids are leaving for college and they're, or they're getting divorced. Anybody that's in transition or wants to move towards something, we see a whole host of people. Um, we also have a certificate in positive psychology coaching, which is particularly how do I as a coach apply the tools of positive psychology for my clients, which has been wildly successful for those who are coaches. And then we have what I would call standalone interest courses for things like building resilience. We also, this fall, are going to be running a course with Dr. Michael Steger on meaning in life. So we find experts and we, who are, use evidence-based tools in the service to applying it to the life of human flourishing. And those are the courses that we teach. And, and, I mean, and I'm actually, oh, I'm sorry. I will come back to this resilience program. And before that, I will ask you, how do you collaborate with the world-renowned leaders in positive psychology? How do I collaborate with them? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm fortunate that, you know, since Holby Institute has been doing this work since 2013, and positive psychology as a field is relatively new, that we've been doing this for a while. We are one of the leading educational institutions in this You know, I've been doing some teaching around leadership in particular. So I tend to teach the courses on leadership and using these skills in business. Dr. Maria Serwa is the one that um, has worked with us since day one. It was really Tal Maria and I who were part of the original group of people uh, that were teaching in the Certificate in Positive Psychology. So Maria is the resident expert in um, resilience and really living into happiness, even in deep and dark 
uh, difficult times. So she's really the expert on that. So we live into it just because this is the work we do. We've been doing it for a while and we do conferences and things like that and webinars and, and get out into the world and try and share this work as much as possible. And you were also working at Kripalu Center in North yes. America, and which is a yoga retreat center. You also helped them in creating an online program, which is a stress resiliency program. Can you please elaborate more on that stress resilience program? Yeah, so the the online programming was really the positive psychology program that we just talked about. But above and beyond that, I worked with Kripalu on a fantastic program they have called RISE. Um, and RISE is a stress resilience program whereby they use yoga and yoga precepts to help build mindfulness around understanding our stress response and how we can use our body our attention and our breath in a different way so that the stress response is lessened and we can ride the wave of our life with with, with more skillfulness. So uh, that's the RISE program at Kripalu, which is lovely. And in your personal life, along with yoga, so do you have any other mindfulness practice? Uh, well, my mindfulness practice doesn't look like one thing. So Sometimes I do body scans, which is one of my favorite ways of, of practicing mindfulness, especially when it's been a stressful day. Sometimes it's as simple as leading a um, meditation practice in the morning uh, with breathing techniques. I do love the body-centered movement piece of, of yoga or other practices that allow me to get more into my body. And then I would just say that the other everyday thing that, that I really find mindful for myself is taking walks in nature. When I'm outside walking, it connects me more with my husband and it connects me more with nature and it settles my nervous system down. So <laughs> those are sort of my go-to practices. And I'm aware of these practices, but I'm not... 100% sure what a body scan technique looks like. Can you please explain? I'm sure some of the listeners may not be aware of body scan. Yeah, thanks for the question. So a lot of times what how concentrated meditation, how concentrative awareness is practiced is by taking your attention to the tip of your nose and watching the breath come in and out. And you're supposed to keep bringing your attention back to that one spot. And sometimes that's a hard practice for us to do when our mind is very busy. And so a body scan is a way of um, taking the attention to more than just the tip of your nose, to really actually practice bringing your attention to one, to each individual part of the body. So for example, a body scan may say, pay attention to the top of your skull, bring your attention to the front of your forehead, to the right eye and left eye, to the bridge of your nose, to the right ear and left ear to the right nostril and left nostril, to the top lip and bottom lip. So you see what I'm, I would go through a whole, you know, it could be a whole hour, it could be 10 minute practice where you're directing your attention to specific parts of the body instead of just the, you know, the one on the tip of your nose. So you begin to scan the body as a whole and take into the whole versus um, just watching the breath coming and going. And there are a lot of different techniques for the self-regulation of the tension. And that's really at the basis of all mindfulness practices. It is a self-regulation of the tension. 
Sometimes that attention is concentrated, like focus on the tip of your nose. And sometimes it's more of an open focus where we are receptive to everything that's happening, whether it's a noise, a thought, a breath, and we can just sort of open the aperture of our awareness to hold the whole. And then you could do anywhere in between, which would be a body scan or a sound meditation. So my meditative practices tend to tend to be very different, where sometimes people like to have exactly the same practice. Mine tends to be varied depending on what's needed in the moment. What challenge do you think people feel and see in practicing mindfulness practices in their mm-hmm. everyday lives when somebody's new into this? Yeah, boy, what I would love to hear from from your listeners on what they find is the biggest challenge. I, I can tell you after 20 years of doing this work and teaching it uh, for almost as long, people tend to think they're doing it wrong. <laughs> that is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll hear people say, oh, I wasn't paying attention for a certain amount of time and I, I did it wrong or my mind went elsewhere. But, it, you know, that's that's not the goal of it. But you happen to notice that your attention went somewhere else. That in and of itself is mindfulness. So we have a, we have a, a preconceived idea, I think, a lot of times, especially as beginners, that we have to do it right, that we're doing some aspect of it wrong, and so we tend to use the meditation as a, as a self-flagellation or judgment about how we're using our attention. Whereas I like to think about we're just trying to be in relationship with our own self. And when we try and fight the thoughts or berate ourselves for having our attention wander, we're not really being kind to the mind. I did write a whole book. I called it uh, Radically Receptive Meditation. And it came about because I was really struggling with my own meditation practice. I just could not keep my attention on my breath. And I would go away to do meditation retreats and I just would, I would hate it basically. It would be awful. I would just, it would be like, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard, hot dots in the eyes. I, I couldn't, I, I just was like, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm going to give up on this. Now, a yoga teacher not being able to meditate, I thought was problematic. Um, <laughs> That's true. This is this happens. Yeah, it's funny. I could be extremely meditative in yoga class. Like I could, there was such a such an intense concentration when I was moving, and even at the end of the class doing the body scan. But if I just sat down to do a meditation, it was, it was just awful for me. And I ended up going to this meditation weekend with Jason Siff. That's S I F F, and he wrote the book unlearning meditation. And his approach was more of an open focused meditation, which is not really taught a lot. You know, most of the times when we learn meditation, it's really this focused concentration. But he really did this weird way of, he didn't lead anything. He said, whatever comes up is fine. I don't care what position you're in. You can lay down if you want. You can stand, you can sit. I mean, there was in a lot of practices, you say, okay, sit like this, put your body like this, breathe like this. Do So it's a very sort of concentrated regimented. He was completely opposite because what he was trying to do is break apart how we thought we should be doing it right and instead say, you know, can we hold the whole of it? And that weekend changed the way that I looked at, 
at meditation practice. And out of that came the book, Radically Receptive Meditation. What would happen if we just were with ourselves completely openly the way, the way it showed up? And can we value the different mind states as they are instead of self-imposing something that we think that they ought, ought to be or should be? And where people can find this book? Uh, Radically Receptive Meditation is somewhere on the Whole Being Institute page. <laughs> I will put that link in, into the show notes. <laughs> and I would like to shift some gears over here. And I got to know about you from World Happiness Summit page. Mm. Mm. And then I reached out to you. And happiness is a very interesting topic, you know. And yeah. we can we can go on and on on this topic. What is happiness for you? How how do you define happiness? Mm. Yeah, and when I think about about the world happiness, I'm gonna get a little sad because of course this is when the whole COVID thing started, and I was supposed to go down there and do the keynote, and then I was supposed to go on to Brazil and teach down there, and of course everything's been canceled because of COVID. And I look at my 2020 calendar. <laughs> it's canceled, canceled, postponed, canceled, canceled, postponed, canceled. That's not making me very happy. <laughs> well, we have the honor to have your keynote in this conversation. <laughs> so happiness is defined as three things in science anyways. And they define, first of all, happiness is an emotion. So, you know, when we feel happy, we know the difference between happiness and say sadness is in our own body and the thing about feelings is that they are fleeting they don't stick around for a long time so that there is another level to happiness and that's happiness as satisfaction in life and one of the things that really builds our capacity for satisfaction with life is using our character strengths so character strengths are those things that are really our values and action. They're actually the way of living into our, our, our behavior and actions that's, that's value-based. So these character strengths, you can actually take a free assessment to find your own character strengths on viacharacter.org. And living into using your character strengths um, increases your satisfaction with life, which is you know, one part of a happier life. So first happiness is emotion, then happiness as uh, satisfaction with our life. And the third part of happiness is what we've already talked about, uh, happiness as meaning in our lives. So it may not be when we're living into meaning that we feel particularly happy because sometimes meaningful work is really difficult and really challenging and really hard. But there's a felt sense like, ah, oh, there's some coherence and significance to this work that, that, that builds capacity. So when the um, scientific community looks at studying happiness, they're either studying it as emotion, studying it as satisfaction in life, or studying it as meaning in life. And this construct for ourselves can be helpful too, because in other words, we might not feel happy as an emotion in a particular time, but we might feel happy in doing meaningful work. And the term whole being is really a mashup of two words, whole person, well-being. And that mashup for us of whole being is really the word for us that we use in the deepest sense of happiness. And in this culture and society, 
we all are after happiness everybody wants happiness and when we come from eastern philosophy for instance thiknathan dalai lama dr wayne dyer and they all talk about that there is no way to happiness happiness is the way and when i read anthony demello have you heard of anthony demello no i have not so i have i i read his book called awareness he died in 1987 and he talks about happiness that it it exists in every human being there is it does not exist in anything else we already have it and we are trying to find happiness in materialistic things or in the in other things and but why we cannot be happy because we have so many layers of conditioning programming and the beliefs that we have you know we have installed from our past so if we can let go of all those beliefs conditioning then we can attain happiness and yesterday i posted a small post on happiness that happiness is not correlated with money and and one guy got a little mad about that that he, why we relate money with happiness yes because we relate money with happiness and somebody who is making 40000 a year may be happy super happy and somebody who is making millions of dollars may be miserable and that's when money is not correlated with happiness every time do you have any opinion on that well you know so after a certain baseline increases in salary or money or income or revenue uh doesn't correlate with an increase in happiness that is true uh it's also true that below a certain threshold that lack of money does lead us it does have a, a negative correlation to happiness so if you're in poverty and and you're the the, the that threshold of revenue of basic living expenses when you when you measure people who are happy that there is a correlation between lower price points and lower poverty levels that that do affect levels of happiness and Sonia Lubomirsky's work says that when we when we look at happiness that you know some part of it is under our volitional control that we can make choices that will increase our felt sense of happiness and there is part of our circumstances that um do affect our levels of happiness and i'm not talking from the spiritual perspective of say uh, bhagavad gita or the buddhist tradition dalai lama that there's this underlying awareness that happiness just is i'm talking about the scientific definition of happiness as an emotion as satisfaction in life or as meaning in those constructs poverty does affect our happiness levels in those constructs a war torn area that we live in will have an impact on our happiness level so i think people's lived experiences of happiness as a subjective measure of well-being does does feel like it's being impacted by poverty or war torn or areas even if our spiritual texts tell us that happiness always exists that's my take on it I'm this sure is this is a whole another topic yes happiness. i think so <laughs> take hours and hours and we don't have that luxury right now so megan i will before we end this conversation and i would like to ask you one question that what does your daily schedule look like from morning to night mm-hmm. what does megan 
McDonough. Like. <laughs> oh, that's such an interesting question. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to, to think it through. So I usually wake up at, at somewhere between five and six, and I'm very fortunate that my husband brings me my tea in bed. So I, I, I sit in bed in the morning, have my morning tea, and then he and I usually go for a walk uh, with the dogs. Then I get back somewhere between 7 and 7.30. I write up my notes for my morning meditation. And I do a meditation online every morning during the weekdays at 8 o'clock, both on Instagram and on Facebook Live. So I do a short, you know, anywhere from 10, uh, 15 to 20-minute meditation with the theme of the day. And then after that's over, I go into my computer work, you know, setting up courses, talking to faculty, talking to people like yourself, <laughs> <laughs> setting up webinars. Then I usually have lunch with my husband. And then in the afternoon, it's more of the same with work. And then in the evening, we typically go for another walk and have quiet time in the evening. Uh, that's usually my day. Well, thank you for explanation. And mm -hmm. where, where can people find you online? Yes, hobinginstitute.com. Awesome. I and mean, I will put all this information in the show notes. And uh, Megan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a fun-filled, mindful, loving, passionate, happy, and energetic conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to the podcast, The Nishan Garg Show on Apple Podcast. You can also subscribe to the show through my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. You can also share this podcast with your family and friends or whoever want to feel fulfilled and thank you so much again.